Father, I long so much for people to be changed by your word. For your glory and for their joy and for this world's sake. And so I pray that your anointing would be upon me. That you would fill me with your Holy Spirit. That you would loose my tongue. That you would engage my heart and brood over this people and give them an ear to hear and hearts to respond. I pray that as we try to get the sound system in perfect order, even before the pews come in, that you will enable everyone to hear whatever part of the sanctuary they're in and help me to speak distinctly so that no one loses anything especially at those moments where you might have something appointed for them to hear. So, Lord, draw near now. Be the power and the presence in this room. And let no one leave unchanged, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Some Christians come to the end of their lives very suddenly. So suddenly that they don't have a chance to say one word of parting testimony. No final words, no last sayings. So you're you're left with a, a lifetime of deeds and a lifetime of words and manifest attitudes to piece together for the interpretation of their lives. And that's the way it was with Rollin on Tuesday morning. Not one second to prepare or to speak a word of meaning. There are other Christians who come to the end of their lives and they see the end coming very clearly. That's the way it was with the Apostle Paul. They have a chance to reflect on the meaning of their lives and talk about what their lives meant. And here's the sentence from the Apostle Paul concerning the meaning of his life as he readied to lay it down. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And so the meaning of his life He said, the meaning of my life is that everything has been like a fight. Everything has been like a race. Keeping faith for me has been a struggle. Trusting the promises of God has been a fight. Being anxious for nothing. And walking by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me has been war. That's my interpretation of my life. Just trusting God and walking by faith and holding fast to Jesus has been like boxing an enemy and like running a marathon. And he left no doubt about it in his first letter to Timothy that that was his interpretation of your life as well, if you're a Christian.
Here's what he said. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold on eternal life to which you were called. In other words, Paul knows nothing of coasting Christianity. Paul doesn't recognize a Christianity that is not fighting. He doesn't recognize a Christianity that isn't running. He says things like, flee all these things, Timothy. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, gentleness. You hear those words? Flee from, pursue toward. These are the words of war and athletics. Paul knows nothing of coasting Christianity. Nor should we. Neither does the book of Hebrews that David just read, our text. The main point of the text in verse 1, hope you all keep your Bibles open. We're going to look at all the verses in this text. The main point, the imperative, everything else supporting it, is let us run the race set before us. Now, let's get the situation of this book before us, okay? Hebrews is a book written for people that are getting tired in their Christianity and starting to coast. A lot of time had passed since the church came into being. It looks like the Christians are weary. And Hebrews, for example... uh, 10.32 says, recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle. You were up for it. Verse 34, you had compassion on the prisoners. Or chapter 5, verse 12, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need that someone should teach you again. Chapter 6 says, I fear that your faith is phony and some of you have tasted the powers of the age to come in vain. Bethlehem is 120 years old this week, last week. 120 years old. We've been around a long time, though as David prayed, not real long when you consider God's time. But a long time as churches go. And how easy it is for an old church to get tired. To get diverted into mere maintenance ministries. To get careless about spiritual vigilance. To quench the Holy Spirit so there's no more passion, no more zeal, no more fire, no more flame, no more courage. Not, I don't think Bethlehem has succumbed to that. But oh, how close is the danger in an old church and really in any church. So the writer says, take care, brethren. There's the fight. Take care, brethren. Lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief, leading you to fall away from the living God. 
Or chapter 12, verse 14. Lift your drooping hands. Strengthen your weak knees. Make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Pursue peace with all men. Pursue holiness without which you will not see the Lord. In other words, run, fight. It's a book written for those who are starting to say, I've put in my time. Or, I'm tired. Or, there's no future for my church, or my family, or my life. That's what Hebrews is written for. And our text, chapter 12, verse 1, is a gun going off. Pow! As the last lap begins. To warn us that the race is to the grave. Not to retirement. Not to 45 years old. Not to your first job. The race is to the grave. It says, lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. What does that mean? It means at least get serious about the race. Come on. Get serious about the race. Stick off your coat. If you have to take off your coat, take off your coat. If you have to take off your shoes, take off your shoes. Get serious about the race. So I want you to test yourself this morning. I have prayed. God would speak. Are you running a race? Is your life a race? Are you fighting a fight? Is your life a fight? As you look back over recent weeks, is it a fight? Are you fighting or coasting? Are you running a race or strolling off into the trees? So I just ask you, test yourself this morning. Are you running? How do you do that? You lay aside weights and sins. You get out of your life everything that makes you more worldly minded. And you know what that is. I could list them off. And they're not all bad things. They just are worldly things. You know what you fill your life up with that just makes you worldly minded and makes you not powerful in God. Doesn't make you want to run. Doesn't make you want to fight. It just fits you in to the world so that you just fit. So you get rid of that. You lay that aside and you put into your life those things that make you more heavenly minded. And if you don't make those choices... You will coast and many will make shipwreck of their faith and come to destruction. We choose what we put into our lives. Mark it. You may put things into your lives that strengthen you and you may put things into your life that weaken you. You can make those choices. And I call you to because God says to lay it aside, he said. He didn't say think about it, pray about it. He said do it. Lay it down this afternoon. Get them out of your house. Lay it down. And put in the things that make you strong. Put in the things that focus you on God. Put in the things that make you love Him and delight in Him. It's your choice.
great danger of every aging church and every aging denomination and every aging person, namely everybody, is that we might begin to coast instead of run and fiddle around instead of fight. Is your life a fiddling life or is it a fighting life? I wish I could make plain to you that your life depends on this. We, see, one of the great deceits of coasting is that it develops a theology that says coasting is okay. So what I want to do in the minutes that are left to me is try to motivate you with three motivations that are in this text to run. To run with all your might and to fight the fight of faith. And the three motivations that I see in the text are in the title of the message written in your worship folder, namely, looking back to witnesses, up to Jesus, and forward to joy. Those are the three motivations I see in this text. Let's take them one at a time. First, looking back to witnesses. The first motivation to run the race and fight the fight of faith and holiness is verse 1. Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. In other words, as you run this marathon, this race, there's a very thick, dense crowd pushing in on the racetrack. Now, these people are the people of chapter 11. Everybody knows that who's read this book through once, but if you haven't recently, chapter 11 is just a long list of saints. And you can add to that a lot more. The people who are pressing in, I saw a picture of a finishing race the other day, and they just left about this much room for the marathoners to finish. They were all just pressing in like this. That's the way it is. This cloud is gathering around, and they're all pressing in. These are people like Moses and David and Paul and Deborah and Ruth. They're just pressing in here, and you are called now to run in view of this. They have finished the race, circled around from the finish line, and come back to the sidelines to watch the rest coming through. Now, how is this supposed to motivate you? Two ways that I see in this text. The first is this. In calling them witnesses, I don't think the main point is that they are watching, but they're close enough so that you can watch them. Now, I say that because of chapter 11. Chapter 11 talks about them being testified to for their faith and sets them up as models and examples. So here's the first kind of motivation. I don't know if this will work for you, but the Bible gives it to you, so I think it expects it to work. You're running and you look up and around and you see people of all kinds who finished it. They finished it. And they gathered around, and you see their faces, and you say, there's David, and he committed adultery and killed a man, and he finished it. I can finish it. You say, there's Jonathan Edwards, and he got kicked out of his church. I can finish it. You look up and you see William Carey. He was just a plotter, and he finished it. I can finish it, too. You look up and you see Mary, the prostitute, and she finished it. I can finish it too. And you see Stephen, he was hated and stoned and rejected, and he finished it. So I can finish it. Mary Slessor and Amy Carmichael and St. Paul, who lived all their lives single for God, and they finished it. Jerry and Rollin and Wyman finished it. 
I think that's the way it works. This cloud of witnesses come in and they press in on you. You look up at them and what you see written on their faces is, I wasn't perfect. I wasn't special. I was just a fighter like you and I made it. I finished it. I circled around. I came to stand here by you so you could watch me. Remember that I finished it and be encouraged to go on. That's the first way the witnesses motivate. So know the Bible and remember Rollins. Here's the second way the motivation works. It's a little more complex, I think. There's a therefore at the beginning of verse 1. Sends us back to verses 39 and 40 in chapter 11. Which says, all these, that is these people in chapter 11, all these witnesses, these saints are gathering around in this cloud. All these, though well attested by their faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God had foreseen something better for us. Now stop right there. You get it? Somehow or other, they're not receiving yet the promise is good for us. And should make us want to run. And so we have to ask, well, how's it better? How's it better for me today? How does it make me a better runner? How does it make me happier and stronger, more zealous, more courageous that they didn't get the promise? That took me about five hours to figure out. The answer is given in the next phrase. At least my understanding is all I can give you of it. Something better for us, namely, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Compute. (laughs) How does this work? How is it now that they're not getting the promise is something really good for us, better than if they had gotten the promise, because... Um, their being made perfect, not without us, but with us, is better for us. Well, let me try. Here's my effort to understand this. I think what this is saying is the final state of perfection and salvation with risen bodies, reigning Christ on the earth, restored universe, does not happen until the last person crosses the race so that we can all experience its coronation together. There's something about not giving out the ribbons sort of one at a time as the people cross. Or maybe they do give out ribbons. I I, I struggle with my analogy here. They get ribbons, but they don't get the cup. There are spirits of just men made whole in heaven. Rollins' spirit and soul is made whole or perfected. He has no body. The body is out at... Fort Snelling. That's not the way it should be. That's not perfect. He's not perfected yet. Now, why does God hold back on that blessing for Rollin and David and Moses and Isaiah and Jonathan Edwards and William Carey? And why does God hold back and not raise the body right away? Start a new planet somewhere. Answer. There's going to be something stupendously glorious when we do it together. I think that's what the text means. So the second way the motivation works is when you're running 
And you look up at these witnesses like Rollin and your favorite old time characters and you see them. You know what you should see written on their faces? Come on. I'm waiting for you. I want my body. Come on. That's right. And when the last person crosses the line, the trumpet will sound and he will descend. And it's so interesting that Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4 deals with exactly the opposite concern, namely whether or not we who are alive will precede the dead into glory. And he says, no, you won't precede them. They won't precede you. You will rise together to meet the Lord. In the air, there will be one twinkling of an eye, one terrific transformation of all our bodies, one king reigning, one restored universe, as it were, in a cataclysmic event. And that is a motivating expectation for running. So that's the first motivation, looking back to witnesses in those two ways. They finish their course, all kinds of weak, stumbling, plodding, ordinary people finished it. We can finish it. And they're waiting for us, cheering us on, as it were, saying, come on, finish it. I'm ready for glory, more glory than I have right now. Second motivation, looking up to Jesus. It might be very easy. Now, this is a check on your listening and your understanding. It might be very easy to conclude from my hard driving call to run that The running and the winning and the glory really does depend decisively on me. So you walk out of here saying, good night. I can't even stand up, let alone run. So let's fix that misunderstanding, okay? The text says, look to Jesus. The pioneer, leader, And perfecter of our faith. Now, what does that mean? I see three ways in which he is pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Number one, he pioneered and he perfected the foundation of our faith, our redemption and our salvation. He pioneered it by um, enduring the cross and despising the shame. And he perfected it when he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. It is finished on which we stand. Second way he is the pioneer and perfecter of our faith is that he was a model start to finish of how to do it. He pioneered how to trust God in his life on earth and he brings that life of faith and trust to perfection as he enters glory. If you want to know how to run the race and how to trust the father, watch Jesus. And thirdly. He was the pioneer and perfecter of our faith in that he is the giver and the sustainer of your faith. Now, here he lifts the whole burden. He is the giver and the sustainer of your faith. Listen to this. Hebrews 13, 21. May God equip you. Now, this this is especially for you who feel ill-equipped to run this morning and too tired to get out of your seat, let alone do a marathon. Listen to this now. May God equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in you. You don't have to do it by yourself, working in you that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus. And what did chapter 11, verse 6 say pleases God without 
faith, it is impossible to please God. Therefore, when this text says working in you that which is pleasing, he means working faith in you, stirring up your faith, strengthening your faith, enlivening your faith. So that even the ability to trust God is sustained by God. And it says, through Jesus Christ. And therefore, he is the author and perfecter of our faith. So don't even begin to think that when you finish the race, you're going to get the glory. God's going to get the glory because as 1 Peter 4.11 says, Let him who serves or runs or fights... Serve in the strength that God supplies, that in everything God may get the glory. So if you want God to get the glory at the end, you better not do it in your own strength. You better discover the way to be a runner in the strength of the Lord. So motivation number two is look up to Jesus and say, Jesus, I don't have the strength to run. I don't have the strength to fight. My hands are drooping. My knees are weak. Come, help me. And then open his word and bathe your mind in him. He'll strengthen you. Finally, briefly, the third motivation is looking forward to joy. Back to witnesses, up to Jesus, forward to joy. When you look to Jesus, what you see in verse 2 and what the writer wants you to see is looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. So what God wants you to do this morning is be like Jesus. Not save yourself, but be motivated the way he was motivated. For the joy that was set before Jesus, he knelt down in Gethsemane and sweat drops of blood. For the joy that was set before him, he took the blows on his back and his head and the crown of thorns. For the joy that was set before him, he kept his mouth shut and did not revile when reviled. For the joy that was set before him, he let his hands be thrust through with nails and his side with a spear. For the joy that was set before him, he did not come down off the cross and decimate his enemies. It was joy that sustained Jesus all the way. For the joy that was set before him, namely being exalted someday in the midst of all those witnesses as they bow down and praise him to their satisfaction and his glorification. And all God is saying at this point this morning is, be like that. Let me give you an illustration to close. It comes from chapter 10, verse 34. The writer says, it used to be this way with you. Once you had compassion on the prisoners... And you joyfully, notice that incredible word, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. So they were threatened and their property was taken and burned and they rejoiced about it. They didn't grumble. That's like enduring the cross and despising the shame. That's like the five mile uphill portion of the marathon in 95 degree heat. Now, where did they get the strength to do that? Next phrase, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. That's the joy that's set before them. The key to laying aside every weight and sin 
that is so desirable, so pleasurable, so ego-building, the key to laying aside every weight and every sin is to see at the end of the race an absolutely indescribable, spectacular, everlasting joy. As all the witnesses will be resurrected and glorified, as Jesus will perfect our faith, and as we will enter into fellowship with him forever and ever and ever. So my closing admonition is run. Run. Let your life be a race and a fight. Look back to the witnesses, up to Jesus, and forward to joy. Because if you see the joy that's really out there, it will wean you away from all the byways and detours along this marathon. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would receive our thanks for all the motives and incentives along this marathon of life. Grant, I pray, that we would be blessed now with the strength to enjoy your faithfulness to us at every step in the marathon. In Jesus' name, amen.